Hello and welcome to Politics at Kings with me, Jack Lewis and Mohammed Sahir, recording uh, as usual via Zoom uh, due to the coronavirus pandemic. So today we will be talking about uh, the 2020 US elections, um, specifically looking at the background of both the candidates, uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden. In addition to that, we will also be examining the results themselves and some of the issues around the election. Uh, and we'll also be having a little look at the Georgia runoff elections, which will be taking place in January, which will determine control of the Senate. We'll also be looking at how Trump's presidency affected policy in America and what are the implications for American democracy. Can Joe Biden's victory mitigate some of the damage caused? Exactly. So quite a quite broad ranging uh, podcast today, but obviously there is a lot of um, uncertainty around what Joe Biden will be able to do in his uh, premiership. So naturally we have a lot of issues to, to cover and to speculate around. Um, so to start us off, I'll, I wanna talk a bit about the backgrounds of both of the candidates. Uh, so Donald Trump, a um, bit of a media uh, personality, but he's originally from Queens. Uh, he inherited a large chunk of his father's property empire. Uh, author of The Art of the Deal, a famous book about uh, business practice that he's very boastful about, uh, host of The Apprentice program, and he has his own board game with Enough. Uh, he has some involvement in politics previously. He has been hinting at presidential ambitions since the 1980s, uh, and when he criticised the current uh, mayor of New York at that time around his approach to schools and public transport. Uh, he stood as a Reform Party candidate in the year 2000 uh, for the presidency, but in more recent times, he became known for promoting so-called Bertha conspiracy theories about Barack Obama, basically saying that he was born in Kenya, when in fact there was no evidence to support that. Um, he set the tone for the presidency, his presidency, during the Republican primaries when he referred to Ted Cruz, his primary uh, opponent, as Lion Ted and claimed that his father was involved in the assassination of JFK, which as, as many things Trump has said is also baseless. Uh, he also uh, encouraged crowds to chant lock her up when he was referring to Hillary Clinton. When he was elected to office, uh, he became not only the oldest uh, president in American history, uh, but also uh, one of the few presidents without background in electoral politics. Uh, the most recent example of that, apart from Trump, is Eisenhower, but Eisenhower actually had experience as the Supreme Allied Commander in World War II. So going on to the Trump presidency itself, um, he came to the presidency with both a Republican House of Representatives and a Republican Senate. So there was a lot of potential for him to shuttle through a lot of Republican policies. But weirdly enough, the first few months of his presidency were actually characterized by executive orders, not with working with the two houses of Congress. So he used executive orders to pass a Muslim travel ban uh, around the world to a huge amount of controversy domestically and internationally. Uh, he gained funding for building a border wall with Mexico. He scrapped deferred action for childhood arrivals, uh, which was a program that allowed children of illegal migrants to the US to gain citizenship and temporary amnesty. Uh, he left the Paris Climate Change Agreement 
Uh, he's been engaging in a standoff with China at the trade tariffs. He left the Trans-Pacific Partnership with, uh, with aid nations in Asia, and he's challenged NATO members to contribute more funding. So there's been a very consistent, um, quite isolationist stance that he's taken. He's been anti-immigration, anti-global trade, but in some senses, he's also quite confrontational in foreign policy, as well as being isolationist. So, for instance, uh, he, his, the tone of his foreign policy can be seen through his approach to the Middle East. He withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal in favour of reimposing sanctions on Iran, something that Barack Obama was opposed to. Um, and he supported an Israel-Palestine peace, so-called peace plan, uh, that essentially supports Israel's point of view rather than listening to the Palestinians as well. I wanted to point out that Trump was elected on an anti-immigration right-wing platform. His supporters have a very particular way of looking at the world. Um, you mentioned the US withdrawing from the Paris Agreement. Now many of his supporters don't believe in climate change at all and many of those that do actually don't believe in mankind's contribution to climate change. They think it's a naturally occurring phenomena. So all the things you've mentioned here, which caused many people to shake their head, were actually things his supporters wanted him to do. In their eyes, the president is doing what he promised. He's keeping his word. Yeah, no, precisely. And I'd like to add to that as well, that uh, in the 2000s, um, there was actually a tendency within the Republican Party to be somewhat softer on migration compared to the actual beliefs of some of their base voters. Because there were many Republicans who said immigration from Mexico and other parts of Central America is actually good for economic growth, which, which many people saw as being a fact, undeniable. Um, but with Trump's voters, uh, he realized that actually a lot of Republican voters or former Republican voters were very anti-immigration. Um, so he kind of steered further right than the mainstay of the Republican Party was at that time in order to actually gain more support and kind of harden the kind of critical mass of voters that he tends to appeal to. In terms of kind of congressional legislation that Trump actually was able to pass, he didn't actually cut, he didn't pass a huge amount of new legislation bar a bill around cutting tax to quite a large extent. Um, he was unusually reliant on as I said, executive orders, um, and he lost the House of Representatives to the Democrats in 2018. So even before that, he was quite reluctant to work with elected representatives, but particularly after he lost the House of Representatives to the Democrats, he became even more kind of isolated from other elected decision makers. So hence, his kind of, that kind of legacy of his presidency, in my view, is more around what he was able to achieve in the first half of his presidency and a lot of that was achieved through executive orders and not necessarily through working with the um with the republican party more broadly so he's quite an isolated president in some senses um and, one of the big legacies authoritarian one as well yeah authoritarian ultimately yeah and then you can see that uh, through his treatment of the 2020 election which we'll talk about a lot more later i think one key legacy that Trump has, though, is the fact that he's been able to appoint three new Supreme Court justices, meaning that now uh, the Supreme Court is Republican dominated. 
Um, and this occurred after the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg in October 2020. Um, and now he was able to appoint the third judge out of the three he appointed in his presidency. And now we have a Republican dominated Supreme Court, which will be passing decisions that favor the Republican right for potentially quite some time, considering that you have lifetime appointments within the Supreme Court. And not just Supreme Court justices, According to the Washington Post, Trump's nominees made up roughly 25% of all U.S. Circuit Court judges. Um, that's quite significant because these courts then set precedents that will shape the country's future. People who are ecstatic that Trump is out of power are in for a big shock because the repercussions of his actions, especially on the justice system, that's not going away anytime soon. No, exactly. And it's interesting you point that out because I was reading that recently you have a kind of local court judges and circuit court judges who are actually deliberately escalating cases around issues such as abortion to the Supreme Court, knowing that if, they, if it gets to the Supreme Court, there may be a national judgment in favour of some of the circuit judges that you've been talking about. Um, so there's kind of this kind of cross working between different levels of the court system that could actually result in a lot of rulings that are in favour to the Republican point of view. So that, yeah, that certainly is a big legacy of the of the Trump years. In, in terms of sort of looking at Trump more broadly and also his kind of media persona and impression, you can see that his presidency has kind of been defined by a lot of different scandals. Uh, so earlier on, you had the Stormy Daniels revelation around presidential campaign money being spent on essentially hushing a woman who Trump had sex with, uh, paid to have sex with, um, and then the fact that campaign money was being used for that purpose uh, could be seen as an impeachable offence, uh, but that wasn't actually what led to his impeachment trial. Uh, it wasn't the Russia investigation that led to his impeachment trial because the Russia investigation was inconclusive in terms of uh, accusing Trump of anything solid, in terms of colluding with the Russians. Uh, what did lead to an impeachment trial for Trump was the a discovery that he had been talking to the Ukrainian uh, president saying that the US will withhold um, aid to the Ukraine until the Ukrainian government digs dirt on Hunter Biden and his dealings with the oil industry in the Ukraine. Now, that, when that was picked up upon, um, a impeachment proceeding went ahead against Trump. Uh, the House of Representatives voted to impeach him, but of course the Republican-dominated Senate uh, did not, so he was not impeached. Um, there were a lot of Republicans that were rumoured to want to vote against him, but that never actually materialised, perhaps because they were scared of harsh repercussions from Trump if they did vote against him, so Trump remained in office. But very soon after Trump survived the impeachment vote, which was in February of 2020, you had the final uh, event, you could say, of his presidency, which was the coronavirus. And Trump has been continuously undermining Anthony Fauci, who is a senior doctor within the American government. Fauci has been telling Americans to socially distance, to wear masks and so on. Trump has been going against federal advice that his own administration is giving. So it, it's been very confusing for a lot of Americans and it has actually encouraged a lot of partisan fighting around coronavirus. And it seems that the kind of broad base of voters who support Trump have been using it as a badge of honor, if you like, not wearing a mask, going to big Trump rallies without wearing a mask. 
and then Democrat supporters have been going, you know, going to rallies in their cars during the presidential election, not wanting to leave their cars, wearing masks more stringently. So you have a situation where you almost have the coronavirus becoming perhaps completely unnecessarily a very partisan conflict and adhering to rules has almost become a political statement. Politicizing a pandemic is not something you would expect would happen, especially in terms of people losing their lives if they don't follow the rules. But it just seems like people were happy to throw their own health and safety out the window to further a political narrative. You can talk about how Trump misled the public into not wearing masks and not taking precautions. But then you also had senior leaders who were attending those uh, rallies, who were attending those parties, who were attending those gatherings without taking precautions, without take, uh, wearing masks, and then getting sick as well. And it just boggles the mind. They must be true believers if they were actually risking their own lives. And some of them actually died uh, after contracting the coronavirus because they flouted safety guidelines and they refused to wear masks or they refused to socially distance. So it's just really bizarre. Really bizarre is par for the course for 2020, but it's not just been 2020. It's been the whole Trump presidency. No, exactly. And you can see this kind of weirdness, perhaps, of this kind of hyper-partisan way of governing. You can see it just through his tweets, for instance, the fact that he's very willing to get into tweet battles with any figure who might oppose him, including the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, including the comedian Sasha Baron Cohen or Kim Jong-un. Anybody who Trump sees as a potential opponent, he will start throwing tweets at them, harassing them. And um, yeah, it, it kind of, I think this links to the coronavirus in some ways because it shows that Trump has an almost complete disregard for conventional politics, for decorum or for anything that might inspire a level of public trust in his administration. Um, and again, we're going to be talking later about the Black Lives Matter protests across America resulting uh, from the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis when a policeman um, bared down his neck. Um, but you can see he, he handled it in a similar hyperpartisan way. In regards to, I think you mentioned earlier, the Middle East policy that Trump enacted in terms of you know stepping away from the Iran nuclear deal. One of the things that gets pointed out a lot is the fact that Hillary, as well as a lot of policymakers and politicians close to Hillary, have always had a very, very visceral anti-Iran stance. And in terms of Israel as well. Hillary is very, very strongly pro-Israel. Uh, I mean, that is a, a feature of American politics per se, but even within the realms of American politics, Hillary is considered a stronger supporter of Israel than a lot of her counterparts. I'm not saying that you would have had a complete sidelining of Palestinians as was in the case of Trump, but I, I think that for a lot of people in the Middle East, they don't really think that if Hillary Clinton had been president instead of Trump, uh, that the foreign policy would have been that much different in terms of these two issues. That's very interesting to point out, um, because of course, obviously that may well, as you said, it may well have been that the Iran nuclear deal did collapse if Hillary had become president in 2016. I'm thinking uh, also about Joe Biden. I mean, he's committed publicly to restarting the Iran nuclear deal, because again, that in some ways is a legacy from 
Obama. Yeah, I was just going to say that um, Biden, because it's an Obama legacy policy, I, I think that Biden was in favor of the Iran nuclear deal and will uphold it if he does assume power. You don't know <laughs> like the way things are going. Uh, I, I, I mean, you just don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think in terms of, um, we'll talk about this more later, but I think with in terms of domestic policy, he can adapt more when he has, if he has Senate control yeah. for the Democrats, but in terms of foreign policy, there is a little bit more leeway, even if he doesn't command both House of Congress. But it would be interesting to look at that more later. Um, moving on to Joe Biden, funnily enough, um, we can talk a bit about, about, about him, his background and his achievements. Uh, so he is originally from uh, an Irish American background, a low-income family uh, from Pennsylvania, but he, the family moved to Wilmington, Wilmington, Delaware, a city where Joe Biden has been campaigning from consistently throughout the 2020 campaign, where he has uh, not been traveling across the country to the same extent as Donald Trump, uh, preferring to stay in his home state of Delaware for the sake of reducing the spread of coronavirus. Um, but he's, he's, a young, he's somebody who's very strongly identified with Delaware, considering he's represented that particular state in, in the Senate for many decades. Um, he's also, interestingly, the only president not to have gone to an Ivy League university since Ronald Reagan. So he is perhaps a figure who some might see as a more of a common man, perhaps somebody who's more representative of kind of the middle class America that he uh, often talks about representing. Uh, he became a senator for Delaware when he was very young. He was only 29 years old. But a few weeks after his election as a senator, his wife and daughter died in a traffic accident. Um, and this prompted Joe Biden to maximize the amount of time he spends with his family. And he has been known as Amtrak Joe because unlike many uh, congressmen, uh, he chooses to commute from his home state to Washington with, instead of taking an apartment in Washington, DC. So he, he kind of has this persona um, as somebody who's a bit of a family man, as some, somebody who's faced personal tragedy and is very empathetic to both his family and other people. So that's quite a key part of his kind of persona, uh, which we saw in the 2020 election. This wasn't actually the first time he tried to become president. Uh, in 1988, he tried to gain the Democratic nomination uh, but he got in trouble after plagiarizing the Labour leader, uh, Neil Kinnock. Um, when the, the, the speech that he copied from Kinnock was quite interesting. Kinnock said in the UK, I am the only member of my family to have ever gone to university. And Joe Biden essentially said the same thing and he got into a bit of trouble for that. And he eventually uh, stood away from the Democratic primary in 1988. He also uh, tried to gain the Democratic nomination again in 2008. Uh, but he dropped out after Obama won the Iowa caucus. Uh, and then in 2020, he obviously became, uh, he won the presidential election after facing off uh, other Democratic primary candidates. In terms of Biden running for president, in 2020, he wasn't always the favored nominee as far as Barack Obama goes, despite the fact that he used Obama's name consistently to the point that he became synonymous with Obama uh, in the campaign trail. It was very noticeable that Obama did not come out and endorse Biden until very much later on in the campaign. Rumors have it that Obama just did not see Biden as president material, despite the fact that 
they both bonded over personally. I think that Obama had more faith in Hillary Clinton's politics than he did Joe Biden's politics, whether that's a fair assumption or not. Uh, I mean, a lot of Obama's own policies would never have seen the light of day uh, if Biden hadn't fought for them to get through. It's very interesting, actually, because um, I started reading um, the Barack Obama Promised Land book. I got it as a Christmas present, uh, and I'm only about 150 pages in, but the, uh, he talks a lot about having admiration for Hillary Clinton um, when he was running against her in the Democratic primaries in 2008. And it's clear that Obama saw Clinton as somebody who was very independent, uh, who's somebody who'd carved out her own political career in spite of her husband's high status. Um, but he doesn't actually have the same kind of comments towards Joe Biden during the primaries in 2008. So, yeah, I just thought I'd add that because it kind of ties into that narrative of... Uh, Obama perhaps seeing Clinton as a more of a presidential uh, contender. But I think one thing that does make Biden stand out, and this is also something that makes him quite similar to Hillary Clinton in some ways, is the huge amount of experience he has had uh, in Washington politics for a long time. Uh, so he's been a senator since the 1970s uh, until 2008, when he stopped being a senator to become vice president. Uh, he chaired the Senate Judiciary Committee in the 1990s, uh, however, in 1991, uh, during the Clarence Thomas Supreme Court nomination hearings, uh, he got into a bit of uh, murky water when Thomas was accused of making unwanted sexual comments to Anita Hill, uh, who was a University of Oklahoma law school professor. Biden was aware of these comments that Clarence Thomas had made, uh, but did not make them public. And he also turned down other women who wanted to testify against Thomas. Um, he still voted against Thomas's nomination, although Thomas did get confirmed anyway. Um, but Anita Hill uh, from the University of Oklahoma did um, cr criticize his conduct um, and is still critical of his conduct today, despite the fact that Biden has apologized for uh, his conduct of that particular hearing. Yeah, so having a long political record uh, doesn't necessarily mean that it's the right political record. Uh, his long history in politics is often him being on the wrong side of issues uh, and not just the wrong side of issues, but the wrong side of fundamentally important issues. For example, Clarence Thomas being appointed to the Supreme Court. Uh, uh, we can't obviously credit that to Joe Biden himself, but I think that uh, Clarence Thomas is one of the worst things to happen to the American justice system and Biden did not put up enough of an opposition to that. He also opposed busing. He supported bills to increase mandatory minimum sentencing, uh, even though now he's opposed to them. He voted in favor of the Iraq War, NAFTA, Hyde Amendment. He, he's been on the wrong side of so many issues that are uh, one of the reasons for why America finds itself in uh, the position it's in in terms of uh, racial unrest and inequality. I mean, just the amount of uh, racial inequality present in American society has so much to do with the crime bill that he, he was in favor of. It disenfranchised Black families, it disenfranchised uh, minority populations, it disproportionately affected them in a negative manner. He is very, very lucky to have become the Democratic nominee and president off of the back of the very, very same people that he has disenfranchised.
It's a very interesting point you make, and I think some of the um, some of the decisions that Biden had made when he was in the Senate, some of them he's apologised for, some of them he has not. But again, an apology doesn't sort of revoke the fact that he did support particular positions that he now uh, purports to oppose. I mean, uh, with the Hyde Amendment, that was essentially a law that forbade Medicaid spending on abortions, which is not something he would dare to advocate now. Um, but you can see he's tried to pivot um, away from some of his previous positions. Um, so, for instance, when he talks about his past political record, he'll talk about the fact that he was a firm supporter of Obamacare when Obama got the Affordable Care Act through Congress. He, he might talk about the fact that he's been in favour of gay marriage and he came out in favour of gay marriage prior, prior to Obama coming out in favour of it. Um, so he might highlight some of the more progressive uh, legacies that he has, but he will probably be quite unlikely to want to talk about some of the more questionable uh, aspects of his career. And it's a very valid argument to have to say that people evolve and change over time, but it does throw into question the suitability of his decision-making. Is he the right person to make decisions that will affect the lives of people uh, when he's been wrong on so many issues so many times? And it's interesting as well, because I think with his campaign, uh, the broad themes he's talked about are racial justice, particularly in light of Black Lives Matter, uh, reforming healthcare, and kind of the Green New Deal, which is something that was, used to be more associated with Bernie Sanders and Casio-Cortez, but now he's tried to adopt as well. Um, so his kind of new stance is quite different to what he used to embody. And it's interesting to speculate on how much of that is his own conviction and how much of that is him being concerned about electability and so forth. Um, in terms of kind of the main kind of personality aspects that he likes to promote. He often talks about himself as being a bit of a negotiator, uh, somebody who can talk across Democratic and Republican divides. Uh, and there's the example of the Budget Control Act in 2011, uh, which he negotiated with Senate Republicans, Democrats to pass. Um, but again, he is somebody who has been in the Senate for a long time. So I think if he, if he didn't talk about the fact that he was able to work with people from both parties, then of course you'd be a bit concerned. I think one of the examples of him having that ability to cross the political divide is not just with Republicans, but with the left as well. I mean, I know that left activists are very much against Biden, not because they want to be, but because they just don't have trust in his intentions or in his ability to bring forth the fundamental change that's required. But if you look at Bernie Sanders, for example, Bernie Sanders was a reluctant supporter of Hillary Clinton. Uh, you could see that they had a very frosty relationship. With Biden, it's the complete opposite. There is a warmth in their relationship where Bernie Sanders genuinely considers Biden a friend and was genuinely supportive of him ascending to the presidency after it became obvious that obviously Bernie Sanders is not going to get the Democratic nomination. I was reading an article where it said that Bernie Sanders remembers Joe Biden's support and kindness when he was an unknown independent senator. So it goes to show that Biden does have that personality where he's able to make unlikely allies. 
in terms of him working with the Republicans, however, I think that is a fantasy that I don't think that the Republican Party that Biden likes to espouse ever existed. This is the Republican Party that enabled Trump at every turn. This is the Republican Party that enabled Trump to enact the worst policies imaginable and also undermine the fundamentals of U.S. democracy. I don't want to sound hyperbolic, but that is exactly what this party allowed Trump to do. I, I just think that it's, it's a fantasy if Biden thinks that he'll be able to work with this uh, Republican Party. I think, yeah, and just, just to expand on that, actually, I mean, I think the fact that he has been a senator since the early 70s, perhaps he has memories of the time when Democrats and Republicans were a bit more responsive to each other. So, for instance, I'm thinking of the 1980s when you had Tip, uh, Tip O'Neill, who was the, I think he was the Speaker of the, of, of the Senate or the House of Representatives. He was a Democrat and he worked quite closely with Reagan to pass a lot of legislation. But then since the 1990s, uh, Republicans and Democrats have been less inclined uh, to work together. You had Newt Gingrich, uh, who was always being hyper-partisan in the way that he rallied Republicans against Bill Clinton's presidency. And then more recently, you've had Mitch McConnell, who has been trying to block Obama at every turn during that presidency. So I think perhaps a Biden might remember a time when kind of cross-party working was a little bit more common. Uh, but now the, Repub the Republican Party have become increasingly unwilling to work with uh, the Democrats. I think one of the criticisms that people on the left, and you know, I consider myself to be very much on the left of issues, is that people on the center or the center right, and I'm not just talking about American politics uh, with Joe Biden, I'm talking about, let's say, the labor center right, uh, Tony Blair, for example, or the Lib Dems, there seems to be a propensity for them to be much more willing to pivot to the right on issues and work with the conservatives or work with the Republicans than to reach out to the left. In every issue imaginable, I just always find that the center is always willing to reach out and meet halfway with people on the right than they are with people on the left. I don't know whether it's because they feel that they'll get replaced or become irrelevant if they do reach out to the left, but I do always feel that that is the case. And what that leads to is the right then pulls the center and the center right even further more towards the right. And now you've got to the point that now you've got hyper-partisan right-wing politicians in charge, not just in America, but the UK as well. And even though Biden is now in charge of the US or will be, he doesn't control the Senate. And God forbid that he does not win the Senate major majority uh, under his tenure. What's going to happen is that you're going to see large-scale concessions being made, which then will lead to business as usual. And then what happens is that uh, communities that are affected by these decisions, um, they don't see any meaningful change and then they get disheartened. And then they're going to sit out the next election and you're going to get these right-wing politicians back into power once again. So there's That's like well, this circle yeah. that goes around. Yeah, kind of continuously recycling itself. Um, 
I think the, the issue uh, that you point out, I think, is partly related, at least in my mind, to, I mean, you see this in the UK, but particularly in America, the two-party system that you have. And I think there's a realisation amongst a lot of Democrats that there, there's a constituency of voters in the centre, generally middle class, who sometimes go Republican, sometimes Democrat. And I think that there's a certain amount of unfairness to the way the system operates, if you like, because again, Democrats will be very conscious that, okay, particularly in 2020, some of their support in key states like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, was won from this constituency of middle of the road voters, whereas they take votes, more working class votes, which are further left often for granted, uh, and they don't always want to, they're less keen to represent people on that end of the political spectrum. So I think the reality of having this quite rigid two-party system is the fact that essentially within Republicans as well, but particularly even the Democrats, you actually have many different constituencies of people, but then the leadership will often pivot in whatever way that he or she believes will win them the most votes and retain a, retain a majority. So it's uh, it is a rather unfair system, and I think a lot of people do get do get uh, missed out and excluded. Um, but speaking actually of voter dynamics, uh, we can talk a little bit about the um, results of the 2020 election and kind of how that was reported, how that came through. So as a quick kind of summary to get us started, uh, Joe Biden uh, obviously won the presidential election uh, by 306 uh, college electoral college votes, whereas Trump got 232 college votes uh, and lost. Now, interestingly, this is actually an exact flip of the results we saw in 2016, when Donald Trump won 306 electoral college votes. This time it's Joe Biden winning 306 electoral college votes. Uh, Biden won 81 million votes in the popular vote, which uh, is actually the largest uh, vote for a president in US electoral history. Uh, partly, I think a lot of that though, might have been a bit of an anti-Trump vote in terms of people being scared of Trump and his handling of the pandemic. Trump, also in another record breaker, won the most presidential votes, uh, 74 million votes for a losing candidate. So clearly the forces of Trumpism and support for Trump is still a big factor in American politics. Um, just a quick explainer to people who might be less familiar with the electoral college system. Basically, while Americans vote directly for who they want to be president, the way it works is that essentially they're voting on a state-by-state -state basis. So let's take, for example, California. Let's say 51, just, just using an example, uh, let's, say, let's say, for example, that 51% of people in, Cal in California vote for the Democratic candidate, then all of the electoral college votes in California will go to Democrats, for example. And even if 49% of people vote Republican, none of the elected none of the allotted votes in California will go to the Republicans because they would be in the minority in that case. Now, I use the example of California, but actually the electoral college system does tend to benefit Republican presidential candidates more so than Democrat candidates. So for instance, both in the year 2000 and 2016, when Trump came into office, the Democrats actually gained a wider amount of the popular vote of the raw popular vote, but, in, but because of the electoral college system and the way that all of the candidates from all of the elect electors, they call them, from each state go to the party that won in that state, 
that means that generally speaking, you have smaller Republican dominated states like Wyoming and Idaho that actually are very small in terms of population but have a disproportionate say in the electoral college. That fact tends to benefit Republican candidates in presidential elections. Um, so in 2016, Hillary Clinton won 3 million votes more than Donald Trump, but Donald Trump still won because in particular states, he outnumbered the Democrats. Uh, Joe Biden was able to concentrate his campaigning efforts on states in the Midwest, uh, which were crucial for him to win over in order to win the Electoral College. So it's a, it's a quite unfair system. Uh, and there is some talk that if the Democrats win the Senate in January, they might try to advocate for a pure popular vote, but we'll see how that goes. Um, just quickly pivoting towards uh, the results themselves. In 2020, five different states changed hands in terms of their allegiance. So Arizona, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Georgia all went from Republican voting in 2016 to Democrat voting in 2020. In fact, the result was declared for Biden about four days after the election when Pennsylvania declared, uh, giving Joe Biden 20 extra electoral college votes and pushing him over the 270 electoral college vote margin where he could gain presidency. And this month, the electors in the electoral college um, voted for Joe Biden, officially clarifying the results. Um, again, Donald Trump, despite Joe Biden's victory, uh, has, been, has, has been filing many lawsuits against different state legislators saying that the count of the election was rigged, even though there's no evidence uh, that the count was indeed rigged. You even had a case in, for example, in Arizona, when postal voting, which takes longer to count, in Arizona, postal votes generally favor Trump. So you had activists in Arizona shouting outside the vote counting station saying, keep counting, keep counting, keep counting. But then in states like Michigan, where the postal votes tended to vote Democrat, you had the same Trump supporters saying, stop the count, stop the count, it's illegal. Um, so you have this very blatant uh, effort by the Trump camp to say, okay, whenever the results aren't in our favor, we, we will go against them. And I think this particular election in 2020 has been memorable from the sheer amount of postal voting that's taken place. Now, a lot of people have not wanted to go to polling stations because they're scared of catching coronavirus. Um, and generally speaking, the communities that have been hit hardest by coronavirus, including African-American communities, tended to vote Democrat and also tended to vote Democrat by post. So Trump has been undermining the legitimacy of postal voting in order to just focus on the physical in-person voting, which tended to favor himself. Now on election night, the results first came in more in favor of Trump, but then as the postal votes were counted further and further along, it was clear that Joe Biden had the edge, uh, but Trump tried to oppose that at every turn. So at every turn, Donald Trump has tried to suppress voting just because the conventional wisdom is that the lower the turnout, the more it would favor Donald Trump. So at every turn, he tried to prevent people from being able to cast votes. There were accusations that he purposely tried to destroy the postal service in order to prevent 
postal votes from being collected and reaching their destination in time or in an effective manner. There were obviously uh, voter ID law enactments and accusations of voter fraud, despite any evidence showing that this is a major issue. So at every turn, Donald Trump had tried to to prevent people from exercising one of the biggest civil liberties or rights that they have, which is the right to vote. And the fact that so many of the Republican Party representatives have supported him in this exercise should be a worrying sign for the future of American democracy. It's very interesting, actually, we talk about this kind of history of voter suppression as well, because ever since the American Civil War, um, there has been a piece of legislation in the federal government that has obliged former Confederate states, so I, Southern states, to put in particular safeguards that will make sure that African-American people can vote fairly in elections without being intimidated or prevented from voting. Now, weirdly, this particular piece of legislation, this amendment, was cancelled in 2013. Uh, with, under the belief that former Confederate states had indeed reformed their voting practices and now they could be trusted to allow all people to vote without federal oversight. But I think it's interesting because a lot of states with quite high levels of voter suppression are these same states that were put under this watchful eye up until 2013. So I think perhaps uh, it's very sad to see really, but a lot of states with histories of well, at first slavery and then Jim Crow and much longer than that, voter suppression, are still practicing that today and clearly still need the oversight uh, to prevent voter suppression. And you have a lot of states like, um, I, think, uh, I think Texas is an example, where former, former prison inmates, i.e. felons, aren't allowed to vote. A lot of, also across America, it is the case that homeless people can't vote because you need a registered address to vote. And I think Texas in particular has very restrictive voter ID laws, like, like you were mentioning, Mohammed, and people need to show a huge amount of ID when they come to uh, the polling station. Often that includes passport, but then poorer Americans won't want to work, can't afford to travel outside of America. So then they're less likely to gain access to voting. So there is a huge history of voter suppression that has tended to operate against ethnic minorities and often in favor of parties that espouse um, views favored by the, the, the white establishment really in, in America. Um, and it is somewhat shocking that um, this dynamic still exists today. Moving on to sort of looking at the election more broadly. So as well as voting for the president, Americans also have the opportunity to vote for members of the House of Representatives, which come up, come up for election every two years, and also to vote for a third of Senate seats. So senators have a six year term, but every two years, a third of seats in the Senate are up for election. So during the 2020 election, Joe Biden won the presidential election. Um, the House of Representatives, the lower house, as it is also called, uh, the Democrats lost ground in the House of Representatives. Uh, they still retained a majority in the House of Representatives, but they have lost ground. And this disappointed a lot of Democrats who were expecting a sweeping win Across the, across the board and an increase in their majority. Um, with the Senate, now this is something which uh, is very interesting. The result of the Senate elections is still inconclusive. And the reason for this is actually because of a 
1960s law in the state of Georgia. Now in Georgia, there were two Senate seats up for grabs, one of them because, as I mentioned, of the, because of the rolling um, third of seats coming up for election every two years. But then there was another seat in Georgia, the second seat up for grabs, which was being voted on because the previous senator had retired and they needed a new person to replace that senator for the remaining two years of the term. So you have two seats in Georgia up for election. But what happened in Georgia, there's a law in Georgia that says if any particular candidate can't reach 50% or more of the popular vote, then the less popular candidates will be eliminated in an extra election where the two most popular candidates will go up for what you call a runoff election, which is what we're going to have, what we're going to see on the 5th of January. Now, the legacy, the kind of origin point of that particular uh, law in Georgia is quite interesting. It originates from the 1960s when you had a white candidate going for, I believe it was the Senate, um, and he accused the, the other side of block voting, i.e. all of African-Americans in the state voting for a particular candidate when the white vote was divided between other candidates. That's what was alleged at the time. And to count against that, essentially, Georgia wanted to flip the dynamic when the white vote would be more consolidated in a runoff election. And we're actually seeing that in January with Raphael Warnock going against Miss Lothar in the election, uh, white versus a black candidate. So you're kind of seeing that similar, quite um, anachronistic uh, dynamic being replicated today. So depending on the result of the Senate election, we will see whether or not Joe Biden can enact his um, legislative program. I think one of the main issues that is preventing the Democratic Party to progress is its leadership. I think that the Democratic Party will not be able to represent the people it purports to represent until Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are replaced because they have this antiquated worldview, which is even Nancy Pelosi more than Chuck Schumer, I'd say, uh, which kind of evidence itself with Joe Biden kind and the Democrats kind of backtracking away from progressive policies because they're worried about how it would impact voters in, 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 in the Senate elections. They, they're afraid that if they appear to be too progressive, voters will reject them. And this is a flaw that plagues the, the Democratic Party. As, as I talked about earlier, they feel that they are able to reach out to this imaginary conservative Republican voter who will vote for them as, as long as what according to them are reasonable policies, that progressive policies are far too radical. As long as they sort of like shy away from those progressive policies, they'll be able to reach out to Republican voters and gain an edge uh, over the Republican candidates who by and far are awful by any objective uh, metric. Uh, but this is, this is a fantasy. Uh, if you look at the Lincoln Project, which sunk millions and millions of dollars and their main aim was just to get Republican voters or conservative voters to vote for Biden. They failed because more Republican voters, a higher percentage of Republican voters voted for Trump than they did in the previous election. So 
despite spending millions and millions, and I think the figure was around about $60 million. Uh, I'm not sure that's the exact figure. But despite wasting such a huge amount of money, they failed to attract any meaningful uh, percentage of Republican voters. In fact, it was the opposite. So I don't really understand what the party gains from alienating progressive voters in favor of reaching out to voters who will never, never vote Democrat. Um, and they've, they've yeah. evidenced this time and again. It's an interesting observation. And I think particularly in the 2020 election, uh, it's very difficult to actually try and convert voters from one camp to another. I mean, I think I read somewhere that it was less than 10% of the electorate identified themselves as swing voters in 2020. So there's actually a very small constituency of people who you could actually convince one way or the other. Um, so it's actually quite a hyper-partisan election and it's just, um, it's, yeah, I, I see what you mean. It, it's, um, it takes a lot of energy to try and convert undecided voters or, left, or maybe centrist Republicans. Uh, and often the investment isn't always recuperated afterwards. Um, and I think you can see this in Georgia in particular where you have urban areas like Atlanta that are very strongly Democrat, and then you've got rural parts of Georgia, which are very strongly Republican. Uh, so you have two quite kind of heavily concentrated camps, which, um, and, and a very small amount of kind of swing voters, which both sides are trying to argue over. Um, it's hard to predict what the result will be of the Senate election, but if, if Democrats win both the seats, then the result will be you'll have 50 Democrats in the Senate and 50 Republicans in the Senate. Uh, so it will be a tie. But in some ways, you could argue a working majority for the Democrats, only because in a tied situation, the Vice President, Kamala Harris, can cast a tie-breaking vote in favour of the Democrats. So it, it will be incredibly tight, even if, the, uh, even if the Democrats do win the Senate. And it will mean that the Democrats will have to be incredibly strict when it comes to voting together in the Senate, but they will, it will still enable Joe Biden to just about pass some of the domestic policies he wants to pass without trying to revert to executive orders. With that in mind, I'm just wondering, uh, Mohammed, if you wanted to tell us a little bit about some of the issues uh, that were kind of hotly debated during the 2020 election. Perhaps we could start with uh, Black Lives Matter. So Black Lives Matter took a hold of the nas national conversation in the U.S., but also took a hold of a conversation across the world. It became a global movement, not just restricted to where it started due to police brutality. It, it might have gained a foothold in conversation this year, but it's been an ongoing uh, hard-fought battle by activists trying to further racial equality and talk about uh, systemic injustice that deprives ethnic minority uh, citizens from their due rights. Joe Biden benefited from it just by the fact that his opponent, his opponents were so bad on, on this issue. He skirted by by being middle of the road, paying lip service, just by saying Black Lives Matter, for example, even though there is no concrete policy in place that is supportive of those words. But just by saying those words, he's distinguished himself from his opposition, which refuses to even acknowledge the fact that 
Black lives do indeed matter. And so in this regard, Joe Biden has been very lucky because one of the main issues that the Black Lives Matter movement has been trying to uh, further is, is defunding the police, which has become a issue that has been twisted and misrepresented, not just within the Republican Party circles, but also the Democratic Party circles itself. For example, the when you talk about defunding the police, we're not talking about completely eradicating the police service. You're talking about taking away funding from the police and increasing funding in those areas that the police have no business of attending to. So for example, if you increase funding to mental health services, you would have more people being able to attend to calls that have to do with, uh, let's say, people suffering from mental health issues rather than sending police that are ill-equipped to handle such situations and, as can be seen, have resulted in very tragic consequences uh, where the police have, have been called to help by worried family members and instead ended up shooting the, the victim that they were called to help in the first place. So it's a very, very legitimate argument, but it's been sort of like twisted into this narrative where, uh, where people are framing it as this call to completely eradicate law enforcement. No, that's not, that's not what defund the police is about. It's about funding other areas of public service that will remove the need for the police to attend to issues that they are in no way equipped to attend to, but have mm. had to because, because funding has been disproportionately channeled towards police services at the expense of all these other programs. It's interesting that you touched on that actually, because of course, I think Biden was often on the back foot when the issue of defunding the police came up and he had to increasingly say, look, I don't want to eradicate the police. I don't want to, I'm, I don't want to completely get rid of any aspect of law and order. But as you're saying that that claim in itself was a misinterpretation of what defunding the police actually was meant to represent. Um, and I think with uh, Trump, we were talking earlier about his very strong voter base. He was able to rally his base by saying, you know, Joe Biden is against law and order. Look, his party wants to destroy the police vote for me and I'll stop the rioting, I'll get the police in, uh, which appealed to his core voters and again is perhaps part of the reason why he was able to actually maintain a, a large voter base even when losing the election. Um, one other uh, area I'd like to talk a little bit about is uh, COVID-19 of course, overshadowing both the method of campaigning uh, for the candidates as we've touched on, of Trump preferring these large uh, COVID unsecure rallies and, and Biden preferring drive-in rallies or virtual events. Um, so in terms of Trump's line of argument, he's been saying that his big, one of his big legacies is an increase in GDP and employment. And it can't be denied that the American economy has continued to grow uh, under Trump's tenure. Um, whether, but some of that might be to do with uh, the growth in the fossil fuel industry. So perhaps some of that growth isn't entirely sustainable. Um, but COVID-19 presented a huge challenge for Donald Trump in that it eradicated the legacy of growth that he wanted to talk about in the election. So Trump's line of argument when it comes to COVID-19 has been, 
COVID-19 has only caused a temporary dip in GDP, um, but in order to grow the economy, we need to decrease these restrictions and Joe Biden would increase restrictions and destroy growth because of the harsh COVID restrictions. Biden's line of argument has been very different to that. He's been talking about the fact that America has been leading the world in terms of the number of COVID deaths recorded. Um, and part of that is due to Trump giving very conflicted messaging over COVID-19. And, and also he's been saying that not enough funding has been committed to support businesses that have struggled during the virus. Um, Biden has been saying that you can't have an economic recovery when COVID-19 is still rampant. So he's been trying to espouse coordinated action through large scale testing and vaccination um, in order to gradually decrease restrictions when the time is right and ensure economic growth in the longer term. So Biden's uh, kind of approach has been perhaps more in common with other leaders in the Western world, whereas Trump has been very, very anti-restrictions in accordance with his voter base. It's interesting, actually, because it has been highlighted by some commentators that the Trump vote is perhaps higher than expected because you have a lot of voters in southern and midwestern states who believe that restrictions shut down their economy too early on and they voted in favour of lifting of, of restrictions, perhaps, whether rightly or wrongly. Um, so that was so it certainly was a factor that did influence people's voting behaviour. Another thing I'd want to talk about quickly, which uh, relates to COVID-19, but it's a bit broader, uh, is the issue of healthcare. Um, so Trump has only been able to make uh, minor amendments to Obamacare uh, because he hasn't worked well with the two houses of Congress. But Joe Biden has been arguing that he wants to expand Obamacare provisions and that Obamacare was only a start to a more comprehensive healthcare plan. Uh, whether or not he can do this, again, depends on the outcome of the Senate runoff elections in January. One other thing, though, if Biden doesn't get the Senate majority that he needs, he can still pass executive orders around issues such as PPE provision or vaccination plan that will be able to deal with some of the fallout from COVID-19 in the immediate term. But in terms of bailout plans, federal bailout plans, he needs to work across uh, the Senate and the House of Representatives. Recently, we had a $900 billion uh, stimulus package that was agreed by both parties as a provisionary measure. Uh, Joe Biden, if he wants to increase the support given to American people and to American businesses, he needs to work across Congress. But in terms of looking at vaccination, PPE, he can control some of that through executive order. I want to talk a bit about kind of the implications of a Biden presidency, but Mohammed, are there any other issues that you think we should mention about the campaign? One of the, the main issues, which then I'll use to transition into the next point, is the fact that Biden gained votes because he promised or indicated support for a lot of progressive policies that Bernie Sanders had advocated for, for example, uh, raising the federal minimum wage to $15. But it's becoming more and more obvious now, looking at the cabinet that he's putting together, that it will be more about business as usual rather than any transformational change. And I think that would be my perspective on Biden's upcoming tenure, that I what I predict he will do is enact lukewarm policies that are just a band-aid, kind of like throwing crumbs out there when there's a 
fundamental need for large-scale systemic reform. So let's take, for example, uh, talking about uh, climate change and reform in the energy sector. While we will, of course, rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement, that's just a very small symbolic move, uh, which once again, Biden benefits because that's the common sense thing to do. It's not, it's not really a big transformative step. It's just that his opponent was Trump that took this really, really bizarre, stupid step of withdrawing from the Paris climate agreement. So now just the fact that Joe Biden will rejoin it is going to be seen as a victory, whereas it's not really anything meaningful that he's done in the sort of way that that needs to happen. One of the ways that you can actually look at it is how uh, AOC was snubbed uh, on her preferred seat on the Energy and Com uh, Commerce Committee. So she didn't get that position. So you can see that you're not going to have a tilt towards progressive policy reform, even on important issues like climate change or healthcare. If you are a politician and you've just seen the devastating impact of what a pandemic like this can cause, and you are still not in favor of healthcare being a fundamental right that should not be dependent on someone's income or someone's ability to pay, then I don't know what will convince you otherwise. Just the fact that countries like the UK or Canada, their neighbor, have a healthcare system where people don't have to worry about paying insurance premiums or worrying about about pre-existing conditions or worrying about how financially straining getting medical help would be. That is something that any politician with any political sense or any shred of humanity, that should be enough for them to pivot towards uh, Medicare for all. But you don't have that because you still have that antiquated ideology that Biden and so many Democrats have. Uh, even when they'll have a mandate, they're not going to push for that. It's very, it's very interesting, actually, because I was reading how a lot of positions that Bernie Sanders was advocating, for example, universal health care, and to an extent, uh, more affordable or free higher education, are actually policies that are broadly popular in the yeah. United States. But there seems to be something of a disconnect between what voters perceive as popular policies and the way they view lawmakers. Um, so, for instance, if you've had voters who are in favour of free healthcare, but then they've been not in favour of Bernie Sanders because of the representation he has been given in the media of being this crazy radical who can't govern and so on. Um, and I think a part of the problem for me, uh, I mean, we've often been talking about uh, the word systemic in this podcast, and I think it's a very interesting phrase because you have a, situa a, a situation in the American electoral system, where because of the electoral college, because of the layout of the Senate, you generally have a case where Republicans have a disproportionate amount of power, and they are able to influence the outlook of Democrats and guide them more towards the center or more towards the right. Um, so you actually have a case when Americans actually want uh, some of the changes that Bernie Sanders was talking about and some of the changes that perhaps Joe Biden would like to adopt. But because of media representation and because of the way the American government is working, they don't actually relate 
some of those convictions to to the Democratic Party. So you have a very weird disconnect going on in America at the moment. You're talking a bit about Biden kind of sidelining some of the more leftist figures within his party. And I think I'd agree with that, because if you look at some of the appointments to his cabinet, of course, he, you've got Pete Buttigieg, who's been appointed transport secretary. Again, he's a more of a centrist figure. And perhaps even Kamala Harris uh, herself uh, as vice president. Uh, so it's... Um, It'd be interesting to see what happens. Um, in terms of looking at the environment, um, I think Joe Biden has some limits on what he can do immediately because a lot of um, fracking and coal and, and gas is derived from private lands uh, rather than federal lands. So he can never say over kind of the amount of energy uh, that is extracted from federal lands, but the majority is actually extracted from non-federal areas. So there is a certain limit on what he can what he can do in kind of the energy the energy sector, but he still within that parameter it will be interesting to see what he can do. Um, in terms of uh, the economy, he talks a lot about the Green New Deal, which is something that he gained from uh, Bernie Sanders and Ocasio Cortez about investing jobs in sustainable energy and transitioning America gradually away from fossil fuels. Uh, but in addition to this, his economic plan is about expanding the middle class, reducing income inequality. Um, so he kind of talks the talk of, of, some, of, the, of some of the left, but um, it remains to be seen how much of this he, he would like to enact. I mean, if you just look at some of his cabinet picks, there's a lot of talk about it being a very diverse cabinet, but there isn't any ideological diversity in the cabinet. And when you talk about representation, yeah, there is representation on the cabinet, but then it just can't be about representation. It has to be meaningful representation that the people that are chosen are actually going to benefit the communities that these figures are pur purporting to represent. I'll give you an example of the UK. We've got Priti Patel, who people look at as a British Asian woman uh, in a position of power, but many of the policies that she advocates for are directly harmful to that very community. I mean, there's a joke that Priti Patel would deport her own parents if she, she oh, was able to. That's not a joke, by the way. She, she actually kind of alluded that she would in an interview. <laughs> but anyway, sorry. But yeah, so, so for example, uh, you've got General Lloyd Austin, who Biden has uh, nominated as the first black man to be Secretary of Defense for the U.S. He sits on the board of a defense contractor that's been profiting off the misery of, you know, humanitarian crisis around the world. Um, he, they armed Saudi Arabia they, uh, to sort of like bomb Yemen, sheer abject misery. And is that the type of representation that you think people will be happy with? Uh, we're supposed to be happy because, wow, there's the first black man who's now Secretary of Defense. But is he really a good person to have on that job? Is his appointment really going to benefit the Black community in any meaningful way when a lot of the policies and a lot of his actions have actually harmed people? Uh, you've, got, um, you've got Cedric Richmond, who's been hired to head the Office of Public Engagement, and grassroots organizations have accused him of taking money from, from uh, fossil fuel companies. Uh, and accuse them of staying silent while they poison his uh, community. So you've got all this talk about diversity and representation, but 
I don't think it's the right kind. It, I don't think that it's any meaningful representation. I think it's just a PR stunt. I think that's an interesting point you, that you raised there. And I think you can draw something of a parallel between perhaps the treatment of Ben Carson uh, within the Trump administration. I mean, he was secretary for housing, but a lot of commentators have said that, well, actually, um, why Ben Carson? Like, why did you point Ben Carson? You know, did his policies necessarily benefit the African-American community, which he is part of? Or was he just there because of a PR reason to say, oh, don't worry, the Republicans aren't all uh, aren't all white. So I think that, as you said, there is a difference between uh, kind of ethnic diversity or diversity in background and diversity of views. I mean, you have some uh, appointees to the Biden team, like uh, Deb Haaland, who's the first Native American person uh, to serve in cabinet since Charles Curtis, uh, vice president in the 1920s. Um, but she, you know, she's quite a new, she's only been a congresswoman since 2018. Uh, but hopefully she would uh, try and represent some of the issues that Trump has been neglecting in terms of treatment of Native American communities and natural resources in those communities. But again, it remains to be seen. And there are other cases, as you pointed out, in, the, in, his, in Biden's cabinet appointments that are perhaps a little bit sketchy when it comes to their, their background. So I think that is, so I think we've covered the mainstay of the, uh, the issues around the election and the implications of the Biden presidency as well and some of the issues facing the US at the moment. So thank you uh, for listening to Politics of Kings today. Thank you very much.